How could, how is it you could understand lunar possession? <laughs> but why last week's show was so good seems to evade you. <laughs> that, that might so strange. Because I, I think it's because I've, I think I, I don't know if there was anything new besides the story about um, casting the demons out. I don't know if there was anything that I hadn't said in other episodes. Maybe there was. Maybe that's what. That's you know. I mean, I think I had said all that stuff before. I thought I had. Not all of it. Not all of it. I guess there were a couple of things you got me to admit to. Well, one of the things you didn't walk through very clearly was how possession comes from lunar, from the moon, or I how don't... it troubles it someone. That part you didn't like. I listened back to it again, and you you had to give so much foundation. <laughs> I feel like you're catching me up on how everything works just so you can get to that, and we never got to, oh, yeah, this is how. Yeah. 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 That might – I may have avoided that. So what are we talking about today? That's <laughs> – We still we, – we got yeah, time. We still got time. I, I'm think, caught up now. You think people are wondering? I'm wondering if I can't find anybody else, really, to be honest with you. I'm wondering, like, so what, so I understand, so, okay, there's two things. Someone hit me up, uh, hit us up on Twitter, I believe, and was like, hey, um, Jason had talked about the fact that we had Mars problems before and with the pig and the whole situation yeah. with Mars. And I remember that when you were telling me the second time, I was like, oh, yeah, we did talk about that. I didn't have a category for it yet. Right. Um, and so I still have to figure out what is it that happens to make someone feels like Mars is bothering them. I don't understand that yet, nor do I understand what somebody has to be going through that the the moon plagues them, right? And, this, and uh, you know, you even talk about police, full moon, they know things are going to be crazy. Well, what's happening there that somehow – I mean, you talked a little bit about it in the sense that the the way that the moon operates – and affects our waters here and the tide and so on and so forth, and us being made up of so much water, it might actually have some sort of effect on us too and how we interact. That that was a, something that you set forth. Um, but I still don't understand how the possession part of that happens. Yeah. Well, I, I think – so we have a a, a strict physical, spiritual – divide that we just assume that we take with us everywhere and we don't we don't actually and as christians we might even say well no we know that's not real but but all of our metaphor systems that we think in all the language that we think in actually that assumption is embedded that's one of the things that makes it so difficult because we we don't even our word influence um, has come to mean physical influence. So, um, like I influenza, which is is our word, which is you know now a specific virus mm -hmm. that affects mm -hmm. us. That actually used to be a general disease that meant that that there was an influence of some there was a some some sort of broken influence between us. And the, the and the cosmos, right? That our that the so in the word influence now, because we are materialists 
by assumption, even if not by, even if not by theology, right? We're materialists by assumption. We think influence has to do with something that the five senses can touch, right? There has to be some sort of physical force that, to, for there to be an influence. And, uh, we've dropped our language. I mean, we, we only believe, for example, that there are five senses. Right? Right. There's just five. Right. But the, <laughs> in the Middle Ages, they believed in ten. What? Right. There were ten senses because um, the, 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 they, there were the five that interacted with the physical realm and then the five senses of the mind, which we'll see if I can come up with them. Memory, fantasy, imagination, um, uh, there's two more. I can't think of them off the top of my head um, because I because you wouldn't tell me what we were talking about, so I'm unprepared. <laughs> You're always unprepared. There's nothing to do <laughs> That was true. Uh, live my life unprepared. But the the so they so they believed in five senses, and those ones were the influence of our of those senses upon us, and those senses and that upon the world didn't function through physical matter, right? So the way the, the the things that were in your imagination had an effect upon your life and the things that influenced your imagination um, weren't necessarily just simple physical things. Reason was is one of the other uh, senses. Uh, and so, um, and we, we have even, you know, we, we have even all of those things the ones that we can turn into a physical property like memory, um, we, we conflate into our brain memory and say, well, memory is, you know, the, the wrinkles in your brain and those sorts of things. Now, there, there is some connection between our brain and our memory, um, but there's also, I mean, one of the things, that one of the realities that we know now because of the microscope and, you know, how much more we have studied the human body is that the brain doesn't isn't only in our skull the brain actually extends throughout our body there are the second largest port piece of brain is in our stomach is in our gut right so you've got there there's an ex, our brain is not only in our head it's actually extended all throughout um which is you know why you get gut feelings with memory you know that like if there's a whole our body is an interconnected um unit right it's a biologically interconnected unit in uh, but it's not simple biology right our body is mind body spirit uh, in my understanding the word soul is actually the the all of it together right so um you know our spirit and our body are does god created our body in adam blue the spirit into our nose we came alive and we were a living soul right our body and mind together uh, our body and spirit together um, and uh, the Greeks also pulled the mind and the spirit apart and so and they they delegate um, different aspects of the mind into their own categories so that you can talk more accurately about them, you know, Greek and Latin are both um, more accurate. They're languages with small, where words 
attached to smaller portions of things. They divide things up further. But when Jesus, you know, so you've got in in Hebrew, you've got love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and strength, with your uh, heart, soul, and strength. Um, and but the Greeks actually divided the heart up into mind and heart. You know, and but and when Jesus repeats things, he said he actually is fine with the added distinction with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, um, which is a, a distinction that the Greeks added. Um, so there's not a problem with distinguishing further, but what we have done is in distinguishing further, we've separated right, things that are actually a single unit looked at from different angles. And so um, because of that view of mankind that we have, that we are a physical creature, that we're a physical thing um, primarily – we have dropped all of the senses that are have to do with non-physical non-physicality, all the internal or spiritual mind senses, uh, because we don't believe that influence comes any other way except through physical, right? So, um, so if there's if something's going to affect us, it has to come at us in a way that touches us through physics. You know, biology, physics, something like that. And our understanding of physics, then, is that it is a um, blind physical process. That there's not – so, you know, why, why does a stone fall? Well, a stone falls because the blind force of gravity pulls it or pushes it down, depending on – you know, which physicist you're talking to, um, is it a pull or is it a push or what, you know, how does it work? But they, they push on one another through the force of gravity. Well, what is gravity? Gravity is the force that pushes and pulls bodies, physical bodies together, right? It, it's, a, it's, we've named something that is still actually a mystery. Well, in the ancient world, when you look at Aristotle, he says, why, why does a rock fall? Well, because its natural place is with the other rocks, right? The world is a rock, it's a giant rock. And so we know that its natural place is with the rocks, and so it's returning to its natural place, right? So it falls because of its internal nature, according to Aristotle. Um, and that, and, but as the Middle Ages went on, they added actually a whole layer of metaphors that they're pulling from the scriptures to think about it. Um, why, uh, that, that actually all of creation is, in, has a desire to do what God wants it to do. Right? So it's not even just simple. Like, well, it's return, it's got its nature. It actually, in their metaphor system, um, now, whether or not they actually believed that the rocks and the stones and the trees had real desires in their metaphor system, it was um, they derived their nature from what God said they were, who who God says they were. And so uh, when they fall, they're doing it to glorify God, right? They're, they're desiring to be who God made them to be. And so, you know, rocks fall, birds fly, trees wave in the wind, um, the wind blows. Uh, and all the way up to 
that's why the stars move and the planets do what they do, right, is that there is a um, – there's there's two sort of metaphors they use. There's the the uh, the, the liturgical dance of creation, yeah. right? It's worshiping, and so it moves the way that uh, – it's moving through the liturgy that God established in its daily offices, right? The daily The daily worship services, it's – weekly or it's monthly worship services and it's yearly worship services um it, it because the week isn't a the week is not a part of the astronomical calendar right the week is something that we count out it's a, it's the it's something that so there's not an astronomical week um right there's a, there are m- lunar months Months counted by the moon. There are solar months um, that that have to do with the the number of the the where the movement between one sunset and the next sunset, one sunrise and the next sunrise, and the different directions that the sunrises and sunsets move. There are lunar months that have to do with the the um, full moon to new moon. There are daily uh, astronomical events sunrise sunset there there the stars move through a pattern every year uh, that uh, the other aspects of the the other part of a solar month has to do with which constellations the sun is rising in and setting in and so so those are all astronomical the week is something that is not an astronomical it's because of God's creation order it took God six days, and then he rested on the seventh, right? So it is something that is not embedded in the movements of creation in the same sort of way, right? So um, so the sun, the moon, the stars are uh, a calendar, um, and they move through their calendar in a liturgical dance. And they, they go through, they, they fulfill their offices, um, which is – a word that had to do with worship services mm. in in the Middle Ages as well as other things. So, so you've got um, that that understanding of the whole world being interconnected because God created it in rhythms and patterns, right? And then the other metaphor system that they used a lot uh, is um, music, right? So mm-hmm. the music of the spheres is something that you find in the ancient world. But really, it comes to its peak in Boethius, uh, de, de Musica, and it, the music of the spheres, it, he, he says the, that creation is one giant symphony singing together, um, and worshiping together, creating music together, and so that it all actually fits. And so, um, that when sin removed moved us out from under the positive influence of creation because of its poetic unity, its poetic, uh, the, 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 it is created to reflect and show and put forth God, God's nature, who God is, what he's like, and to return worship to him. So all of creation is in this perpetual worship. Sin kicked us out of the the our place our intended place in the symphony 
Mm. And so when our our actions are discordant, right, we no longer fit well. Now, God wrote the kind of song that it it navigates through everything, and then our discordant stuff ends up becoming, in the broader scheme of things, ends up becoming a part of the harmony, right? That's God's genius in the way that he wrote the symphony, um, but that's not... Uh, it, but that was us trying to act against him, but him being wiser than us, right? We jump out of the symphony, we play different parts than we're supposed to, and then his, his, um, in his, his manifest and manifold wisdom, all of those parts end up finding a harmony within the broader story and the discordant, um, it ends up finding a place where it all comes back together. So you've got this really interesting um, metaphor system where the world's influence is on us, but it's on us like music. Right? The heavens are the, the influence of the heavens is on us like music, um, and that that the way music influences us. Um, you know, Boethius says the, that the heavens, when we look at them properly, they tune us into our place in the symphony when we see them by faith, right? We are tuned. We are instruments that are out of tune because of sin, but the heavens, the influence of the heavens upon us, um, when we see them properly and we look up, we are tuned into the symphony, right? So we don't have, and that, and so we immediately start saying like, well, what is, what is, how's the, how does that influence work? Well, that's that's because, and what we mean is, does it is it a physical, like is it the light that does it, like vitamin D, like we get enough vitamin D from the sun, and so you know we're happier, and um, now that and there is something to that, there is a physical aspect to it, but there's actually a cosmological influence that they that they were comfortable talking about that we are not because our metaphor system doesn't allow it. So the, um, something, you know, that would be really interesting to think through is like the physical manifestations of, of a teenager falling for a girl for the first time are really similar to seasickness. (laughs) Right? Like, they're really similar. Like you feel sick to your stomach and you kind of want to throw up. And um, But one of them is something that we love and we hunt for and we try and like we want that to happen. And the other one, nobody loves seasickness. But when you get the description, it, it can it's very similar. Um, how is it that, um, that, you know, why is it that suddenly a woman has that effect on a boy, you know, on a, on a teenager? Well, we immediately say hormones. Um, I've, I, you know, if I've when you read up on the evolutionary biologists, it's all like, well, you know, the the shape of cleavage does this thing makes the lizard brain think of uh, of that I can extend my progeny there um, because it has has the same shape as a monkey's rear end when it lifts its tail. Like you're like, and there are people that take that seriously, 
Right? There's people that read that and they're like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, it absolutely does not make any sense. Not in any way. Not in any way. But yet, those, but when you only believe in the physical influence, you've got to come up with that sort of explanation, right? You've got to have that, that, uh, that, that there's some sort of, that there's a lizard brain in the back of our head, um, that, that remembers, remembers what it's like to be a, a reptile. And so back there, that's exerting a particular influence on the upper cortex or frontal lobe or, you know, where, where our more, our higher faculties are um, instead of what's actually going on, which is? With, so what, what's actually going on is the whispers of Eden mm. are, are hitting your are hitting your eyes. Right. Mm. The, that you um, because it's not that there isn't a memory, right? It's just not a memory of being. It's not that there isn't a corporate memory within us. It's just not a memory of being a lizard, right? I was I was up at Lake Coeur d'Alene, and man, um, I I love I love the lake, I love the beach, I love the ocean, and I got there early in the day and set up my my tent and you know where the the everybody was going to come and have lunch later, and so I was holding down the fort, and there's almost no one there, but Throughout the day, more and more people start showing up, and I love the smell of suntan lotion, and you know, and I was down downwind from it, right? And so everybody comes and they're putting on their sunscreen, and I'm like, "This is the best! This is great!" And um, but one of the things that I love is all these teenagers who want it to be like Eden again. Yeah. Now. Often they're doing it poorly because they're not doing it under the oversight of loving parents. They don't have the wisdom, but they're they're out there, you know, playing volleyball and throwing each other in the water, and you know, and it's like they want Eden so bad, right? And that's that's the reality. And as the church, we should be wanting Eden for them even more than they do. Um, instead, what we do is we say, "Don't go to the beach. It's too much." temptation there flee flee there's no good use for your bodies <laughs> they're just trying to trick you and destroy you and um the world the whole world hates you so you should probably hide maybe a burka would be good um <laughs> now we know that not to say that out loud but we also do have a tendency to think more like muslims about something like this Okay, uh, this is where I want to go to. Or it's not where I want to go to. I just want to dig a little deeper in this. So one side gets rid of the uh, cosmological influence, the unseen realms influence uh, by making it imperialistic, right? If you can't see it, taste it, touch it, um, uh, it, it doesn't exist because you need to be able to examine it scientifically. Right, right? yeah, they have the the, em, the empirical is the only thing that's real, right? The only and influence that's real. So then, what is the church's response to that? What is their so that's the secular response? Is the church actually fitting right inside that same category? Yeah, we so we we tend to um to to you know come right along, and often what we do is we defend what they said thirty years ago. And call it conservatism, you know, traditionalism, um, and it's really just 
last generation's uh, secularism. <laughs> um, but in, instead of actually seeing, um, letting the scriptures inform our understanding of reality, right? that our understanding of reality is that it, it, so we'll defend that it was created by God, and but we'll defend it using science, right? Or or science, but science the way they do things, right? So you can't actually study history with science, right? History, uh, the scientific method doesn't work for the study of history. It's a, it's a method that is a forward-facing method. Uh, the scientific method is. Uh, but the scientific method is the only way we believe you can get to truth because we believe in empirical data being the only thing that is trustworthy. Right. Uh, rather than – so even when we defend that the world is created by God, we tend to do it with the scientific method um, rather than with um, – well, we've got many other – possible methods, right? We've got the historical method. We've got historical records, right? That, um, and that gets us real truth, real knowledge. We've also got um, what I think of as the poetic method, mm-hmm. right? the argument from beauty, right? Because um, really, and I think I texted you about this. I was thinking about this this, this I was week. I going to ask you about, yeah, because, okay, yeah, let's, what, I don't even know. Maybe he texted me. I was like, what is he talking? <laughs> you always you're ahead of I'm trying to throw my thoughts together, and you're my. I love you're, that. You're my muse. Don't stop. Oh, is this the big book of being rude? Seven thousand slight insults. Yeah, my my wife brought me that. And it's like it's like a yeah. I'm not gonna describe it, but I, I think I want this book. Uh, get from my wife and from the kids. <laughs> That's so funny. So it's uh, like if you're gonna insult each other, at least do it intelligently. Here's. <laughs> 7,000 historical insults. It's so funny. So is this a, okay, I think evangelism is the most, uh, is most an exercise introducing people to reality for the first time. Oh, yeah, go ahead and read that. Do you have that? Yeah. Uh, do you want to do this? Well, so I was thinking about how we do evangelism and how so often, I'm, uh, well, I guess I can just read it. The minute that word. Uh, uh, Dawson quote. Well, the, yeah. So the the Christopher Dawson quote, um, I was I was just reading that, but it it but it's it's a lot of the things that we've talked about. Um, so he says first and above all, it's necessary for Western man to recover the use of his higher spiritual faculties, his powers of contemplation, right? And so and the, that's those other senses beyond just physical, hmm. which have be, become atrophied by centuries of neglect during which the mind and will of Western man was concentrated on the conquest of power, Mm. political, economic, and technological. Um, So the, 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 and that's the the opening page of a a new book that I just picked up on leisure. I won't tell you about it because you, uh, I was the title now. Uh, (laughs) the, The title I picked up a couple of new books I'm really excited about. Oh, man. Your uh, camera is following you. Oh, seriously? <laughs> yeah, it just followed you all the way over there. This is Roman. This is my intern. Hi, intern. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to Knox Unplugged. <laughs> um, You're going to get really bored. <laughs> so, 
We got Beauty for Truth's Sake on the Reenchantment of Education. So I picked up two books on that on reenchantment. Um, okay, so that's one of them. But I, but just think because this is and this so this has been on my mind and I've been thinking about how we do evangelism. Um, because we don't we also believe in a disenchanted world, right? We we actually haven't remet reality ourselves, um, and so we don't realize that really the first part of evangelism is actually introducing people or reintroducing people to reality for the first time, right? We don't realize, uh, and so all of our apologetics ends up being defensive. Yeah. But, but it's because we don't even know what an offensive apologetic would look like because an offensive apologetic is actually pointing out the beauty of God. Right, so Augustine defines conversion as the spirit's work to change, uh, to the spirit's work to change our perception of Christ from uh, ugly to beautiful. Mm-hmm. Right. The con- so he says, what what's the difference? Well, when the, the spirit works in you, you look at Jesus and you see how beautiful he is. Or you see how. Right, so you want it. Right. It's a change of desires, but it's a change of what you fundamentally believe to be beautiful, right? And so we don't, we don't have an offensive apologetic because we don't believe in, in a beautiful, enchanted creation, a beautiful, enchanted history, a, a beautiful and enchanted uh, vision of God and his current, present interactions with us by the power of the Spirit uh, in his, and, and in his sovereignty, Right, so beauty, we we actually don't even know how to define beauty because we'll say, well, beauty it's kind of you know in the eye of the beholder, or beauty is subjective, right? So we have we have already agreed with them on the nature of reality at that point mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that we actually add something with our mind, we add the organizing principle, right? That that is modernism. Right. Mm. We, the, so, the, if if beauty is not objective, we're moderns, or postmoderns, or post postmoderns. Right. That's the new. That's the newest. So, right. I think being saturated in an environment like that, are you saying? Oh man, there's so many. I got a bunch of questions here. I haven't even gotten to. The, got a bunch of because here's here's if I had to put. After listening to last week, if I had to put a title or some sort of guarding premise for this conversation, it is breaking curses and reenchanting. That's yeah. That's kind of where I want to get to because I think last week we dealt with the fact that there are there's another type of witchcraft enchantment going on, and we're broken. And so, and here's something else. So I was reading through because of the climate change stuff that's happening and it's about to be a really big deal and the heat waves and the, the big push for the new green stuff and climate, climate, climate. One of the things I started going back and looking at was why do we have environmental issues and environmental problems? Well, the more that I've been talking with you and understand cosmology, if we do real, if we really do have an environmental problem, it's because we are cursed. Right, right. We like that's uh, um, people don't believe in curses anymore, but 
this is, it would be exactly what a curse would look like. You don't get water on your land. Your animals die. You have sexual deviance everywhere. There's crime and turmoil in your streets. You were talking about school shootings. Why do we have schools? We are cursed. Do you understand that? Like, that is not some weird thing that's happened out in the past with witches and stuff. No, this is what happens when you reject God. When you reject God and you choose not to honor him as God and you, and you live like the world has – you get cursed. And so you don't get water on the land. <laughs> you don't You don't get the things that you need to have a climate that um, is happy to – in harmony with everything else in the world because you're out of harmony in a lot of ways towards God. Um, and so it, there is this massive need to break the curse and re-enchant the world. Right? Yes. And, it, and so p- part of um, you were just talking about evangelism. I, I can see how we do evangelism wrong because we're it's so hard. I want to connect these two things, Jason. I want to connect the saving of souls and the living in the world and the harmony of that. Because when people go out and preach the gospel, they have one goal. And it's an essential goal. If um, someone's eternity is going to depend on whether or not they enjoy the beauty of the God, beauty of Christ and the reality of the world, if that is the reality that they're going to face one day, that should be of most importance to them. Right, right. <laughs> Should be of most importance. And I think there's a lot of people who preach and talk about the gospel so that that reality, um, that they never hear depart from me or never thrown away, that that reality, they come into the reality of knowing Christ, loving Christ, and experiencing his, the beauty of Christ and his universe for eternity, right? Right. So that's of most importance. But somehow in there, that middle part, the enchantment of this world and how that operates is all flipped where we don't even care about this world so much as long as we don't create break laws right we live nice peaceable quiet lives right um and so this middle world is kind of ignored in our evangelism how do you when evangelizing to someone, what is the process of re-enchanting that and bringing the soul to Christ? Like, it seems like those are two separate things, right? It, well, but that's that's the reason it seems like two separate things is because we don't believe in an integrated universe in which God actually has a spot for us here. Okay, so, so let me let me push back on that just a little bit for a lot of people who are inside of the more reform world. They are thinking um, that, wait, wait, Paul talked about, I came to you with nothing else but the gospel that was given to me, that Christ was died and he was buried and he was raised back from the dead. And that's the message of the gospel, that if people believe that and trust in that message, they should be made new and live uh, and be saved and be Christians and live holy lives after that. That's the gospel. That is the gospel, but the gospel is... The, the good news, that's good news because it is the, re in, the, the breaking of the curse on creation and the beginning of the reintegration of all things in Christ, right? That's how, that's even, that's how Paul even talks about it in 1 Corinthians 1, 15, or Colossians 1, 15 through 20, is that Christ is the, the, he is the, image of God coming back to restore images of God. 
right? And what happened when the image of God broke in us or was bent in us towards sin? The the curses on creation, the curses on our work, the curses on uh, our marriages, the curses on child rearing, right? The the uh, all of those things, the the curse of distance from God, and all of them, which are fundamentally curses of death, working mm. their way into the different aspects of our life, right? Death is the enemy. Uh, Satan is the bringer of death. The destruction of Satan and the and the uh, re- restoration of us to life is the reason it's good news. Now, and you you hear people say like, well, you can't have good news without bad news, but then they don't even get the bad news right. <laughs> the the bad they they have we've minimized the bad news down to um, a simple thing that you're guilty, right? And and hell is coming, right? But the bad news is actually much much bigger and broader and worse than that. We've individualized the bad news when a lot of the bad news has to do with corporate humanity and its relationship to the created order, right? You've got a created order that began dissolving be, uh, um, because of our sin, because we're the priests of this place. We're the kings of this place. We're the we're the priests and kings of the world, and so when our relationship with our king begins to disintegrate, our kingly rule flow, flowing downhill disintegrates um, what we rule as well, right? It doesn't disintegrate our rule. Our rule continued. What we ruled was disintegrated, right? So creation moans under the weight of sin and death, right? So if we don't have a good news that says, and creation is being restored, right, by the, the, the resurrection of Christ ends up restoring us to our intended role of priests and kings, and then res- because of that, restoring everything that we rule and that we oblate, right, that we priest over, um, that we, uh, not over, we priest next to. You don't priest over, you mm-hmm. priest across. Um, but if if our good news doesn't touch that, then our good news is less than the than the scriptural good news, right? So um, we because we've talked about the curses, we talked. To, I know specifically about the um, the curse on uh, the the thorns and thistles, right? Did we talk about that? I, I mean, my memory's so horrible. I think we did a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's not that wasn't the only curse, right? Like Jesus's blood cleansed the sweat as well, right? His work um, on the cross involved him sweating blood, right? Because our work needed to be our, our work needed to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. Yeah, you were talking about that that, that his his sweat his um, baptized our work. I think he talked about it like that. Yeah, right. Yeah, so our, our work is restored. Um, I mean, Jesus goes up on Golgotha, the place of the skull, and then stabs the cross into the head of the skull, right? Like, he, the, every, there's a poetic, integrated um, communication that's going on all throughout the scriptures to show us that God, God sets out from the beginning to begin undoing the curses 
They're the legal curses that are put on us as the human race, as descendants of Adam. He sets out to undo those from Genesis 3.15 on, right? Genesis 3.15, he promises to crush the head of the serpent. On the cross, he sticks a cross right into the place of the skull, right? It's, it, he's, he is destroying, he's undoing the curses as he lays them down. Um, the, the next thing that happens is he kills, we, he, we are supposed to die, but he begins undoing death because the first, because animals die on our behalf so that we can have clothing, right? He, and then he puts the dead animal skins on us to show that they've died in our place, right? Mm-hmm. So he begins the, um, he begins the, uh, the, oh, substitutionary atonement right out the gate, right? So he, so God doesn't, God doesn't waste any time. But, um, I mean, if you've ever wondered why are there so many sacrifices in Leviticus when there's only one sacrifice once and for all on the cross, well, it's because it takes that many sacrifices to show you all of the different things that the cross accomplishes, mm. right? It, he's, He's got to build a vocabulary of communication. He's got to build a vocabulary in order to be able to communicate what it is that he's accomplishing through his son Jesus on the cross, right? Wow. And so, and that take that took four thousand years to build the poetic, wow, the poetic vocabulary of all the things that Jesus accomplished. Right. So, um, I mean, we we don't have. We don't believe in an integrated cosmos, an integrated history. Uh, we don't believe, and so our good news, we end up being um, non-integrated ghosts using presuppositionalist kung fu in order to disintegrate our enemies. You know, <laughs> we're not even, we, <laughs> we, we. So we know the way we get around it, and if I can rephrase what you're saying, the way that we get around, we know that it should be integrated. And so in order for us to try and get around that in some way, we use uh, apologetics the way we have in order to try and make it all fit together. Is that what you're saying in one sense or another? I think, well, I think, I think the way most people use apologetics is actually in, to show that people live in a non-integrated universe, but we don't have an integrated gospel, an integrating okay. gospel yeah. to invite them back into reality with, right? So beauty, as an adjective, when you say what is beauty, beauty is the onto- the, the interconnectedness of goodness, the ontological <laughs> interconnectedness of goodness. Okay. Okay. Right. Something is beautiful, um, we, because you, when something is good and true and it's ontologically in its proper place, then we perceive it as beautiful, right? And we want to say we add that because we don't believe in the interconnectedness of truth mm-hmm. and, and the the interconnectedness of goodness. Well, um, or, or if we do, we don't have some beauties in our dictionaries of how we define it. So, like, we might have an objective standard of it, and we mark things like that's objectively beautiful, but then if we see something else and we're naturally attracted to it, we're like, that can't be beautiful because it's not in the dictionary. 
(laughs) There's another another side to that, too. It's like, well, no, there's something about this is beautiful, and I don't always know what or why that is. And because I don't, we say, well, it must not be objective. It must be subjective. I think there's a lot of that. So then that's why we lean sometimes even to even a subjective standard because we're like, I know it's beautiful, but I don't have a category in what I consider to be objective beauty. Does that make sense? It does. It does. But I think it's because we thinned beauty down to my my feeling of attraction to it. Even in our dictionaries. Even in our dictionaries, right? Yeah. So there are um, there are are women whose husbands love them dearly and are incredibly attracted to them that I would rather pull my eyeballs out than spend the day with. Right. Right. And if if in my mind, my lack of attraction to that person means that they're ugly, objectively ugly, I don't understand how this thing works, right? Right. Um, that that you can have a a, um, a husband that will talk up and down about how wonderful and beautiful his wife is, and if I meet her and think I would never want to be married to her. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> and I think, therefore, he is, he is broken, right? That there's something wrong with him. Then I have subjectivized beauty, right? Now, um, now, uh, because what God, ha- the way that our experience of beauty happens is our experience of beauty, um, happens within our story and within our experience, um, and, our experience of beauty is a tiny, teeny sliver of the reality of the beauty of the cosmos and God's experience of beauty, right? God, we, we, we experience, (laughs) this is, we experience within time, within the, uh, within the, the order of time, it gets hard to even talk about some of this thing, but our experience of beauty is uh, is as we kind of walk the tightrope of our life story, um, we don't ever step off of it. We don't ever step out of it. Outside of within community, within the context of of the Lord's Supper and within baptism, there are there are times in which we live an experience broader than our than our own story, but we experience for the most part just our own story and the sliver of beauty that god intends for us to experience Mm -hmm. Um, but but god's intention is for all of it to be experienced and enjoyed by us as a human race corporately right so i don't actually have to experience all of the beauty myself because a lot of it was created for my brothers and sisters and other people to experience um, and, which is also good, and then our experience as a whole is brought together in community as we tell one another stories about our lives, as we get to know, you know, as we know one another deeply, and you know, I can experience another man's love for his wife as he tells me about it. Right? That's a real communication because we aren't billiard balls that that are disconnected. We are. Uh, um, we are knit together into a single unit, into a single corporate body, and it's, so 
um, it, there's this uh, there we discover our place in the world partly by seeing other people in their place and rejoicing with them. Well, um, we have to, I want to, we're going to have to take a few things we talk about because that's one of the things that everybody argues about. Subjective, objective, how do you know objective, that whole nine. And I think this, and the part this comes to play in that because when you're talking about the gospel, which I want to get back to for a second, um, when you talk about the gospel and the beauty of it, no one knows where to strike that line at of what's beautiful. So then they don't talk about the gospel in a beautiful way, right? So you got people who are on one side of this talking about like, man, your whole life will change. You got to give you everything you want, right? All of a sudden the beauty is in self or inside of achieving all the stuff that you would ever want in your life. And God's going to bless you and you're going to be this, that, and the other thing. And then there's other people who be like, the beauty of it is, you ain't going to hell. Right. Yeah. That it's all in um, – it's it, – I mean, it's nihilistic. Yeah. And, well, well yeah. Not nihilistic meaning there is no meaning. Nihilistic meaning all of the meaning is in what it's not. Mm. Which is what nihilism originally meant. Right? And this is something that I think – a lot of Christian apologists, what they 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 just made they've just been taught poorly that nihilism doesn't mean there's no meaning. Nihilism, nihilism meaning means all meaning is derived from what a thing is not. Um, so, it's, it, which seems like a small distinction, except for when you understand that, you, then you can actually be a Christian nihilist without realizing it um, and present the gospel in a nihilistic way without realizing it. You think um, that's what we're doing right now? I think that's what we do, right? Um, uh, that we rarely have a positive apologetic. A po- an apologetic from the beauty of Christ. An apologetic from the beauty of his story. And Now, um, because uh, ugly isolates us, beauty integrates us. Beauty pulls mm. us towards. Ugly pushes us away. Um, and there's something. I mean, hell is an ugly place. This is you know, the Great Divorce. C.S. Lewis does this really well in the, the opening chapter, describing how ugly hell is, um, and how we can actually begin experiencing hell in advance. We can like pull the fu- future future hell into the present Roman the way that we live. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and he shows how ugly it is. And so there's not, that's, that's okay. If, but then, you know, the next, all the rest of the chapters are about the beauty of heaven, right? Um, mm. Or the beauty of communion with Christ, the beauty of communion with God, which is heaven. Because um, where heaven happens is not, is not nearly as important as who is there. Right. That's the that's actually the the thing. So um because I I believe that in the in the resurrection the earth will be restored, heaven will be returned to a face to face relationship and that there will be every Sunday we'll we'll go up the escalator to worship in heaven and then come back down and live our lives the rest of the days on a restored earth, right? So you've got that sort of um but and, and People get really 
into like, well, what, where is heaven going to be? You know, it, but that doesn't, doesn't matter. Where, wherever Jesus is, that's where I want to be. That's the point. The being with God is the point. Being face to face with the Lord, like we are intended to be, that's actually the point. How it works, what, I could care less, right? Could spend, it could be a, we, we could all be on rafts, just floating through a, a, the water the rest of eternity, and if I'm with Jesus, I'm happy. Right? Yeah. Now, I don't believe that's what it's going to be. I mean, I think there's going to be all sorts of, all sorts of, um, activities, uh, and the, and I believe that the weekly rhythms of, uh, of worship are going to re, re, continue in, into heaven. Um, I think that the, it's the only one that doesn't need the sun, the moon, and the stars to mark it out, right? So it can be mm-hmm. eternal without the sun, the moon, and the stars. So, um, go ahead. I'll let you finish. So that, this, this, go ahead. Which is why I think God gave us that, you know, it, Go ahead. I'm I'm rambling now at this point. <laughs> I'm intrigued by what you just like. I gave us what? Well, so because the sun, the moon, and the stars are, uh, um, they go they go away, right? There's a the space between heaven and earth disappears in the resurrection. So there's no place for sun, moon, and stars. Uh, it is the 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 physical bodies themselves. That that space, um, that place is is going to go away. I I think that there are associated angelic beings with the planets that are going to re, re, stay with us, but their houses are going to be moved around and such. But <laughs> the debate in the Middle Ages was not if there were angelic beings associated with the planets. It's whether or not they wore them like a body, they lived in them like a house, or they rode them like a horse, right? <laughs> the, the planets. Okay, see, this is where, <laughs> this is why I let you go, because you'd be saying stuff, and I'd be like, what just happened? So, uh, <laughs> but I, I think in the resurrection, that, that space goes away. Heaven and earth are face to face again. Again, um, okay. So this is what I want to get to. There's two things. I don't want to forget this. Don't forget, I want to talk about what, how should we be presenting the gospel in a way that, okay. it, I want to talk about that in a second. But right now you just hit on something like how they used to be. So this gets into um, the enchantment part of the world in the beginning. Was there this, was it like that in some point where heaven and earth, um, there was more of a free flow back and forth? Well, so what you have is, in the beginning, it says there's heaven and earth, right? And then God creates the firmament, which is a space between heaven and earth, right? So heaven and earth are pulled apart, so there's, now there's a space there, and then, it, and then that's renamed heaven. Yeah. And then the original heaven is renamed the heaven of heavens. Yeah. Right? So... Um, but then at the end, heaven and earth, at the end of the book of Revelation, the heaven and earth are face-to-face again. And First Corinthians 15, you know, the, we see now again that uh, heaven and earth res- recovered or res- returned to that original um, state. And 
uh, you know, the kind of Jacob's ladder this is image is, is a space between heaven and earth and Jesus, or is a ladder between heaven and earth. And Jesus explicitly points at that and says, that's me. Mm. Right? Like the, that ladder between heaven and earth. Well, and what's happening there, the angels are ascending and descending on it. And Jesus says, you will ascend and, and descend on it. And, and Calvin takes that image into his theology of worship and says that in, now in the present, that, is, that happens when the gathered church is called into worship, right? That there's a, spirit, a spiritual um, presence uh, of us before the throne of God. That by the power of the Spirit, spiritual, capital S, by the power of the Spirit, we are brought into the presence of God uh, in worship. Right, so there's not a distance anymore between us and God when we worship the way there was in the Old Testament, right? Like we talked about how you worship when you make sacrifices to Mars, it shows up on his table, and the whole point is he's distracted and he's kept at a distance. Well, the Book of Leviticus flips that entire system inside out, and you want to be close to God, and so you make sacrifices because then you can move close to God. Right, so your sacrifice ascends before the throne, and you are included in the smoke or in the ascension uh, it, because your uh, by faith you have been united with this animal. You can't go in because of death, but the animal dies on your behalf, like the animals that became Adam and Eve's clothing, and then they ascend up before the Lord, and you get to be in the presence of God. Right, you want to be with God so much that, uh, but you can't. But the sacrificial system makes it so that you can. Calvin says, and now our worship is greater, which means we ascend without the need of an animal sacrifice by the power of the Spirit because Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. So this right. is like we get in Ephesians, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is blessed with every spiritual blessing and seated at the right hand of the Father, right? And seated with him at the right hand of the Father. So now it puts us back in restorative um, pre-fall right. situation, exactly. right? A pre-fall situation, um, and in fact, even greater than what Adam and Eve had. I think they would have had it eventually, but, but what they had in the garden, we have something even greater. And that's why Hebrews says that um, those were shadows of the things to come. Our, our ascension in the animal was a shadow of the things to come, but are now present in our worship, right? Now it, Wherever the church is gathered, that is the temple of the Lord, and we ascend. Well, in the resurrection, all of those things that are by faith are going to be by sight then, right? So, we'll, um, so I mean, this is, why, this is why Calvin was so insistent that people hearing the sermon on Sunday morning were hearing the voice of Jesus. Right, we're in the presence of God. He's speaking His word to us. This is why it's so important that a, a, a sermon, as a as a um, as a corporate art form, is accurate to the scriptures, mm-hmm. because that corporate right. art form of this preached word is the way that the voice of Jesus continues to speak into the world. The recreative voice of Jesus, right? Jesus 
was the creative word that created the world in six days. He's the recreative word that recreated the world in the three days and three nights in the tomb and in the resurrection. And now he continues to be the creative speaker, right? And his word is the recreative word. And the place where that is spoken is in the corporate gathered church. When we ascend before that, the, the, uh, by the power of the spirit, we ascend into the presence of God. God speaks his recreative word to us. And then it echoes out of us in the rest of the week. Right. So that's in Micah, he, he writes the word, on our hearts, the law on our hearts, and then the law goes into the rest of the world as we descend the mountain, right? That's, that's Micah. So, right? You've got this, um, process of the, the restoration of the world, the that's recreation so of That's so post-mill. Oh it my is God. post-mill, but it's also, but that's just because post-mill is it, I guess. That's what I would say. <laughs> I mean, I became post, I didn't, I discovered I was post-mill like way, like I didn't know what the word I didn't hadn't heard the word. I just I love Christmas music. Mm. Right? And and so this this literally this is how I became post mill. Guy teaching a Sunday school at my church read um Joy to the World, the lyrics out loud. Right? As far as the curse will that that, that Jesus' grace will extend as far as the curse found. is found. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, that's really cool. So I went up and I was like, what's, what's with that? And he gave me a Jonathan Edwards book. Um, the history on the, um, the history of, the history of the covenant work of God, I think is what's called, something like that. It was short. He didn't finish it. So the last part of it was just the outline, right? Cause he died, um, of smallpox vaccine, um, while trying to write it. And, um, I, and I was like, oh, man, this is great. And so I totally embraced it, and I personalized it. So I thought what that meant is there is no sin in my life that God is not intent on overcoming. Right? That So I was post-mill about my own sanctification and the sanctification of people. And then somebody was like, well, you know, and actually it was the same guy. He was like, you know, that eventually affects the world around you too. And I was, and, and I was like, oh, that's amazing. And then somebody later was like, you know what that's called? And I was like, just the Bible, right? And he's like, no, that's called post-millennialism. So it was Gary, it was, a uh, uh, Gary DeMar's book, um, and Last Day's Madness. Somebody yeah. gave me that. And I read it and I was like, well, I already believe most of that stuff from the historic hymnody of the church was, and that was where, that's where a lot of the education of our children happens is the songs we sing in church. That's where they get most of their theology. Um, for the first 15 years of their life. So, and, and so, so uh, because they're being retuned in, to, into yeah. who they're intended to be. Uh, and so, I, and so then somebody was like, well, Gary DeMar in that book was like, this is what's wrong with dispensationalism. And I was like, that's weird. I never, I didn't know about dispensationalism. Um, and then, uh, uh, but he's like, it let me into the secret club and told me what it was called. That club, that club is starting to grow, but I think that club misses some of the enchantment that we're talking about. So this is um they've got time. They they we're post mill, they've got time. Um post mill. Um there is a um so okay, I'll tell you about this. This is gonna take me a minute to kinda unwrap, all right. I was reading I've been going with 
through James with the kids. It's a good book to go through with your children. <laughs> Just want to say that right away. And I got to chapter five, and it's, I'm just going to read a little bit of this. Um, chapter 5, verse 13. If anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is someone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil of the name, oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, this is the part that got me. Elijah was a man. Where did that come from? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain. And on the land, it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed, and again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Um, so I started going back and thinking, wait a second. So this is, first of all, this is pretty radical stuff. So you've you got a person who's sick, you know, it says, okay, go to the elders, have them anoint him with oil. And it, pray. It, it says specifically that the person who's sick goes to the elders and yeah. says, will you anoint me with oil? Let him call right. the elders. So, yeah, so he doesn't, so the elders don't make the, they, right. the elders don't go to him and say, hey, let us anoint you with oil. Right. The person says, will you anoint me with oil? Yeah. That part's important because just the structure it's, of it. It's the, it's the liturgical structure of the community. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if anyone commits a sin, let him be forgiven. But then when he goes into Elijah after yeah. prayer. So here's the So um, back when I was pastoring, we had a couple of, a couple of healings. And, but one of them was with, with, in a situation like this, right, where you come in, where somebody came in and their son had, was having uh, – was ill and they the doctors had no solution and um and so he said can you anoint him with oil i was like yeah let's get we'll get the elders i'd never done an anointing i wasn't really trained i'd never been anointed i'd never trained i'd never seen i went and got a little bottle of extra virgin olive oil yeah yeah uh and and uh i I mean i went to the oil aisle at the grocery store and just walked down and was like that one seems right. Extra virgin olive oil. It's a little bottle. <laughs> Was no, it not right? No, no, no. You got to go have the minister of God who's prayed over and put all the <laughs> incense and smells inside of it and, and and fervently prayed over that oil before you can use that oil. You can't just go to Walmart. There ain't no blessed yeah. oil. You got to have pre-blessed oil, bro. Straight, I think it was Trader Joe's, but yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely not Trader Joe's. This is, uh, no, I mean, although that's some good capitalism. I like Trader Joe's. But... um. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't. I mean, I wasn't gonna go to Whole Foods and get demonic oil or something. You know. Anyway, <laughs> we so we. And I don't know what I'm doing, right? And so I've got a towel there, and then this kid sits down. We lay hands on him. We pray. We anoint him with oil and um, read a psalm over him. 
But see, I don't know what I'm doing. And so I just dump the oil on his head. And oil, I just learned real quick, does not stay put. <laughs> it's like all over. It's like covering this little kid with oil. And he's like, whoa. And so I'm like trying to like wipe it up. It was so funny. I, I've, and, um, I was talking to the dad about it recently. Do you remember that? And he's like, I don't know. I've never been to a noise. It didn't seem weird to me. <laughs> So I'm just pouring all this oil all over him. You gotta watch like the man. He was healed, which was great. You know, he um his his intestines had stopped working, and they started working again. Beautiful, but the the it, it wasn't because we knew what we were doing, right? It was because it it was in my mind it was the faith of this child and his parents who they saw what God said to do. They said, "Oh, that's where our, that's what we're supposed to do," um, and then the spirit of God uh, um, acting as well. And He doesn't act in every time you pray for healing, but um, He does sometimes. And uh, when He's get, and it's hit according to His plan and His purposes, and it literally was just in my garage um, because we I knew that the oil might get to other places, and so we didn't do it inside. <laughs> And it, man, it did. It got everywhere. Um, but but then I looked up later. You know, you're supposed to like anoint, like you put it on your thumb, and the, you know all that. <laughs> but, but I think what's uh, what's interesting about the passage is he the the objection that he deals with, which is the objection that first came to my mind, was I don't have any, I don't have any healing powers. Right. Lord, why are you sending right. them to me? When he says, "Look, Elijah was just a man, like and he yeah. healed the he he healed the earth, but in a specific way. It had to do with the lifting of the curse, right on the on the ground, right? The curse that came. So he that there's a covenant office that ministers hold, the elders hold a covenant office that is a curse." Bringing curse-breaking office. Or putting, today, could you also say, because with Elijah, the first thing he says that he prayed it wouldn't rain. Right, yeah, that's what I mean. Curse-bringing. Yeah. Right? So thinking about that passage actually ended up changing even the way we did our corporate prayers at our church, um, right, where we added a corporate prayer for the city to our church, right? Mm -hmm. We look, oh, wait, our, that's what Elijah does. Right, right. He hits a and so that way, the first time we pray for the city isn't Gay Pride March Day, right? That that we are a we are a church that has an eye on the fact that we are the priests of this city. This is our city. This is where God put us. Um, this county, this village, you know, wherever it is, God put us. This is this is where our priesthood extends, um, and you know, some of that is just. As a conservative, I believe in the reality of legal borders, that that's a God-established historical process. So, you know, not a libertarian, so you think, like, yeah, this is a real this is a real place. God sees this city as a corporate entity, and he has put us here as the priests. And, yeah, we're just people gathered, but Elijah was just a dude who held an office. He was... He was uh, brought into the office of prophet, and all of the offices are held uh, in by the church corporately, and the 
the officers of the church. We call them officers of the church because they are corporate officers, or that they're not corporate in a corporation sense, in a covenantal yeah. sense, a personal yeah. covenantal sense. Um, and and that's how that that God um, acts and enacts His grace and His kindness through the covenants. Or through the real covenants, he's bound himself to act in those ways. Dealing with some of this too in this verse, some of this stuff is not just as it's dealing individually with someone, it's telling them to be fervent in their prayer too and ask God to heal them and so on and so forth. But it made me think about the nature and character of men before the fall as well. So would you have this uh, with Elijah? He's operating as a prophet, right? And he's able to – there's so many implications to that. He's able to say to poor ruling kings and people who have authority that are not using it properly, uh, and a, a, you're cursed. And so I pray God doesn't give you any rain. There's no peace here for you um, until you repent. And, and then to remove that curse – um, at the same time, and but I was thinking, okay, so what? If you think about pre-fall, what type of actual authority did Adam have that was given to him that we don't think about or consider because we're so far removed from it? But it's just, you know what I mean? It's because, I, and, and this is something that we talked about a little bit before on the phone, but I was thinking, okay, wait a second. Adam loses his authority over earth. Like, and so when I think about, okay, so wait a second. The second Adam has full authority over earth, you know, and he exercises some of that before resurrection, <laughs> Right. Or, or or are we just saying all that is um, – which part of the hypostatic union is operating? Because, you know, that's, you know oh, what I mean? Yeah, totally. No, it's a really it's a really good question, and I think – so we so, – um, let, me, let me try even I – mean, while you're thinking about that, let me try better to say this. Was some of the things that Jesus did given to him – was some of the things that he was operating was because he was sinless – and was the right authority over that, even though he had to go claim it and rescue it. And some of that would have been the authority that Adam would have had the ability to walk in. Right. Right. So, that, that was not necessarily, you know. Here's here's. First, I think you have to justify the the question, and this is this is how I would justify the question. Um, so we we. One of the accusations, um, I think false accusations, that was leveled at the medieval scholastics was that they would sit around arguing how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. Mm -hmm. And that stuck for whatever reason. Now, that's the sort of argument a bunch of ignorant people make about the smart kids in class, right? We don't need your stupid, intelligent education. You're just sitting around arguing. That's, I mean... In reality, that's what happened, is the most educated people in the history of the world, the most educated culture in the history of the world, is accused of sitting around and arguing how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. We live in a culture that can't even count. <laughs> right. and, we, and we accuse 
them. They they were they were the most bookish culture in the history of the world, and the the and but they and they but they sat around and they actually had um, this argument. Some you did warn me that we might go here, so I looked a little bit. So oh, they, had this argument. <laughs> they actually had some of these questions. Um, and one of the interesting things that one of the interesting ways that they answered it was that the offices would still um, that offices would still exist in the in the way they saw things, and this is because of the particular way they understood the integrated universe, and that officers would have authority, and so kings would have Jesus. So Jesus's healing ability was mm. part of the kingship. And so the kings of the earth, the ones that held the kingly authority, would have had some sort of healing ability, right? That there was that there that his authority he had authority over demons. He had authority over diseases, right? That those are authority questions when it comes to healing. And so, and uh, Tolkien actually brings some of this into uh, the Return of the King when he talks about the hands. What is the proof that Aragorn is the real king um, is that the hands of a king are the hands of a healer. And he goes through and he lays oh, hands on people and heals them, right? So this is coming from this older uh, scholastic Anglo-Saxon meditations, um, the, the Latin and Ang- Anglo-Saxon scholastics, uh, meditating upon the authority of Christ. And what does that mean mean for the way our kings are supposed to act, right? And so, but in practice, what that meant was the establishment of hospitals, right? The, that that what government hospitals, but it was kings' hospitals, right? Because um, you had uh, the the a king was supposed to be in the healing business, right? And so they began. Uh, funding hospitals and things. So you get you start getting in the 1300s, you start getting merchants establishing hospitals for pay um, as you know a capitalistic enterprise um, and with good intentions, right? It it, it wasn't a, they weren't bad intentioned, but um, you know one of the greatest hospitals in Italy in Florence to this day was established by Beatrice's father, right, Dante's first love. There's a hospital still running in Florence to this day. But he was a he was a banker, right? He he was a successful merchant turned banker. Um, uh, but in in that earlier medieval understanding, pre Renaissance, kings healed. That was part of their authority. They had authority, so they they had authority over the physical. And how should authority be used? Well, for healing. Now, our conception of the world has shifted such that we don't acknowledge kings and authorities, corporate covenantal authorities. Um, we so you had to switch an understanding that the right from the right to rule um, to the permission to rule by the people. Right, that people are the real authority. That the corporate that the that the population was the people, or the population was the authority, and they gave somebody the permission to rule them for a time or to administrate over them maybe would be a better way to put it. We don't even believe in rulership anymore. Like I would 
love to have rulers. We don't have rulers. We have bureaucrats <laughs> that are that are put in place by the process of the people uh, voting. And it's, it's we so because we don't believe in authority anymore outside of my own personal choice, um, because we don't believe in an integrated universe in which hierarchies make sense, because we have live in a world in which hierarchy reflects God, right, that reflects the triune God who has existed in an eternal hierarchy, all of the authority which is used for the love, glorification, and exaltation of the others. We don't believe in that, and so we don't believe in a world that would reflect that. So we're functional monotheists at best, um, which you see in all sorts of ways because of the way we organize, right? There is power over and and there is power gathered, right? And it's always a rivalry between the population and the, the person the population puts in charge. You've got this constant tug of war and rivalry. And sometimes one of them gets all the power and oppresses the others. Sometimes the other gets all the power and throws them out. Which is why um, faith theory gets such a, a strong foothold because that's how we operate. Right. So you just made me think about something when you started that. Are you saying the best way to answer this question is to look at the offices and say what were they intended to do if Adam was in the garden he was a prophet priest and king right for earth that's what he was right he was a priest for, kind of like between God and earth and we talked about that last time um, uh, and a prophet to communicate the truths of God back to people um, he was go between relationship right so he was supposed to teach Eve right that was his yeah that, uh not a, he's a husband, king, and priest, but yeah. Was, husband, king, uh, priest, yeah. Yeah, the husband was, is a, the prophet role. Yeah, yeah, yeah husband, king, priest. That's actually, I don't know. In terms like of it. offices, there's not a, yeah, the prophetic office is established in Abraham as a new thing that comes into the world. Got you. Yeah. So husband, king, priest, I got you, okay. Because um, so, so that's, so in Timothy, that's where Paul says the husband, he, the husband role is the teaching role, not prophet. So, right, right. So that is a mature version of a prophet. Then would you say mature? I think the, the prophet is a is a husband role that is outside of marriage, right? So the prophet uh, role, when God gives people the people people prophets, it's him husbanding them, and so they're the stand-in for God as husband. That's good. That's very helpful because you see him do that with uh, David's line, the king line. Okay, that's very helpful. So then you look at those roles, you can say, okay, those roles and what they're traditionally supposed to do apart from sin entering, they actually have real control over nature in one sense, right? Would you say that? Control over creation. Yeah. Creation. Yeah. Yeah. So they have a real authority over creation. But I so, don't think over the nature of creation. Right, that's right. That's creation has a nature already. And it, and, but part of that, part of the authority is to bring it to its intended end. So it's a, it's an historical, a, a history-bound nature that involves development, that can be developed. Um, so, but it's not, but the nature itself is from the beginning. That's super important. And the reason it's important is because if you look at the World Economic Forum, uh, this is why I'm getting here. We're, it's not like this is a crazy question because if you look at what they're doing, they're actually growing ears and lungs and um, 
bones, bones. They're growing bones, your bone from your DNA. They're remaking all this stuff. And so we're seeing the reconstruction uh, of men, that, and they're, they're doing it there. And so it's not impossible or insane to think like, oh, there's some sort of ability. Get The technology is you know, there's a ghost in that machine. <laughs> it's not like, just, oh, we can just grow a bone. No, you don't just grow bones. There's something else that's going on there, right? You know what I mean? And, um, and they're operating within maybe an office that that probably would have been given or um, Adam had authority over at some point. So let's say somebody would break a bone or something. Is it possible that Adam would have the, the uh, ability to bring forth healing um, to a broken bone, not ever having fell from sin. Is there, you know, is that making sense? Because I'm looking at that and I'm looking at James, I'm looking at them asking for the elders to come and pray and to heal. And I'm looking, well, what would it have looked like? What will it look like as man become rightly restored to God? Is there authority in some sense over nature in the way that, um, I mean, you see it with, with uh, Elijah, He's able to pray and stop the weather. He's, you know what I mean? It's not, and, and is there some, and, and you see the Christ coming and having full authority over, uh, the, the land, man, and rightly putting things, he's beating people out of temples, right? Like he's, um, healing the sick. And, and, and those things weren't just done, um, uh, because he has authority. He's doing it because he's telling people who he is. So those, those are to testify of him. But they're testifying to him because he's actually the right Adam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's and he is he is bringing the 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 offices back together that have right. been separated, and I don't think they were separated because of sin. I think God always intended to separate the the offices. Um, the but Christ is restoring them back into Himself, and then He separates them again as well, right? So. You don't end up with right. um, with bishop kings until things go wrong, right? That's um, in the late Middle Ages. Ooh, yeah, the, right. The, the right the end of the Middle Ages, beginning of the Renaissance. You have a, an attempt to return to bring the authority of the of the ecclesiastical authority and the civil authority back together. But that's that's separated. That separation of uh, of separation of authority or separation of powers or an institutional separation. You know, we, we call it the separation of church and state. Um, I don't think it's a bad name. I, I do think it's misunderstood now. But that separation is a biblical understanding. Sphere right? sovereignty. Sphere right. sovereignty, right? You take, you take Christianity out and you don't get the separation of church and state anymore. And I think that's what things, one of the things that's interesting is – People complain about the, you know, uh, anyway, that's a whole other issue. But that Jesus is the new husband, the new prophet, the new priest, the new king, um, all of those. And every act that he does, every story that he tells is um, is he's he's working out of those offices and. We, often we don't understand the gospel. This is why we allegorize it, the gospels all the time, right? I mean, we we live in an age of allegorization, where 
we take everything that Jesus says and we immediately say, how do I fit into that, right? And so we allegorize it and say, oh, he told the story of the Good Samaritan um, and or, 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 you know, David and, David and Goliath, I think, is a good example. And we say, I should be like David, right? Well, that's an allegorical interpretation. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's often how we apply difficult things is through allegorization. But we allegorize everything. And the people that claim to be literalists are often the very worst at, about allegorizing everything. Um, but it's because we, it's because we don't see that the world is a living allegory, right? That we have a place in, right? So Jesus is, uh, he is the prophet, the priest, the king, right? And, and so everything in creation, um, points us back to Jesus, points us back to, to him and points us. So there's this, um, there's a deep authority that he carries with him that is a restorative authority. If Adam had not lost it, the restoration wouldn't have been needed, but he would have carried that same deep authority. Mm. But it's a, instead of a restorative authority, it's a bring to its telos, bring to its fruition authority, right? It's the authority of a gardener that says, what ought this tree to be? Well, it's a peach tree. It's supposed to produce peaches. I have the authority to make help this tree produce the most peaches possible. If I use it right, that gardener's authority makes flourishing. Mm-hmm. Jesus brings that same gardener's flourishing authority to all that he does, but he has to restore first. Okay. And then he says, you will do more to his apostles. You will do more than I did. Mm. Because then he restores us to that restorative authority, um, to that gardener's authority, and says, now go garden the whole thing, right? And and that means everything about being a human is a gardener's task with gardener's authority. Whether it's, you know, um, you, you've got great, wonderful stories. I, some of my favorite missionary stories are the ones where the missionary shows up, goes and finds the authority of the land, you know, goes and finds the king or the chieftain, and the chieftain says, I don't trust you, but the law of hospitality means I can't purposefully kill you. Uh, I'll give you a piece of land, and they give him the haunted woods. You know, they give the missionaries the the haunted woods where people go in and never come out, and they and the missionaries say, perfect. And they go in and they begin cutting down the trees in the haunted woods. And everybody's like, but those trees are all demon-possessed. And and the Christians are like, it used to be. Now we own it. And so they fled. That's how this works, right? And so then they turn the haunted wood into a beautiful place. They build a church there. And next thing you know, the woods that everybody was afraid of that had some sort of demonic connection are now the place that everybody is converted and they begin going there and worshiping. And the chieftain, in his mind, was getting rid of them forever, not realizing he was actually getting rid of the demonic powers that were holding his people in, um, that were keeping his people living in fear. He's actually getting rid of them, not even realizing it. Right? That's what I mean by 
this is a symphony God has written, and even our attempts to sing a different melody turn out to be a harmony with God's overarching melody. You didn't answer my question. <laughs> of course I didn't. What What was the question again? <laughs> I think uh, I did. I think I mean, did. Adam's going to no. have the gardener's He's going to have the gardener's authority that can bring each thing to its intended end. Yeah. Okay. So then, so then the the, the intent. This is really important because right now we see, and you corrected me when I said he has control over nature. I wasn't thinking about the nature of a thing. I was thinking of the outcome of nature. Like you corrected me. Oh, yeah. I was. I was not really correcting you. I was no. Like, no. You were, and it was good. Identifying. No, no, you were correct because I was it was being a little sloppy there, and that needed to be corrected because what the World Health Organization um, is doing, along with the World Economic Forum, is wanting to change the nature. Yep. Yeah. See, that's that's why that was very important, is because they are looking to say, oh, we can actually turn a watermelon seed into a peach. Right. Right. Like that's. And so they're, they're realizing the authority they have, and they're trying to recreate it as if they are God. And that's what was it, it, like. But you don't get to change the seed; you get to cultivate right. it you to be cultivated. Right. So, and, but I think, but I think because God gave developable the world, many of things in the world, developable natures, right? Natures that have that have potential within them. Right to be developed, we get the illusion we're we're we fall under the enchant the bad enchantment or under the the spell that we think that we are like God. Mm-hmm. He created from nothing, and we think we are we have that power over the nature of a thing. But actually, God just made developable natures, historical. Natures, natures that within history can be brought to an intended end because he is, his nature outside of time can't be captured in in a snapshot, can't be reflected in a snapshot. He needs a historical mirror to be able to reflect himself into the world, right? To to be able to poetically display himself, it's not enough to just give a snapshot. He has to give living things that move and develop, and because his nature is so extensive, significant, deep, beautiful, broad, wide, uh, uh, that that the beauty of him in his non in his non developing nature can only be displayed in a developing nature that is historical. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? Yeah, it's going to take. Like you said earlier, it took him four thousand years. To get to develop to the vocabulary to understand of the cross. Yeah. Get that part of that vocabulary, and look, it's going to take eternity for us to be able to, which is, okay, that's a whole nother, my head just hurt a little bit. But I, but I want to get to, um, okay, man, I just feel like I'm just vomiting everything up right now. That's totally fine. That's not for me anyway. I don't that's what care. I feel like all the time. Yeah. So, um this nature that Adam had now has been restored even greater um, because of Christ. Um, how do you communicate? Man, I'm not done with this. The uh, 
the authority that Adam has, his ability to be able to operate had he not sinned. Because I'm questioning now, because this is um, what Christ has done and what he's restored and given the authority back to man. There is something here. I hate using this kind of language, but um, man looking to try and flow outside of the way the cosmos works is him not living up to his true potential in one sense. I hate using that kind of language, but I don't even know of any other better way to describe that, where it's like, man, if you are a gardener, you are gifted to, with the ability to cultivate and to bring something into its true nature, into its true fruitfulness of its nature, right, and to grow that thing, if you're not, if that's what your skill set is, you're not doing that, but you're not walking in your potential, ultimately, right? Like, that's what you're gifted to do, you know, um, so I guess, like, what is it that when, when Christ restored man, what is he restored man? What is the enchantment of that that man has to bring to the world that has some of that magic to it? You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I, it, it, so, it, it doesn't seem like it's, it seems like we, when we talk about this, we don't talk about that side of it. Um, I mean, never mind the fact that they make humans. That's kind of amazing. Uh but there's even the cultivation side of it, the you look at science and what science is doing right now. I hate saying science, but you look what man is doing through what God has put on earth and are able to, you know, I I think that we have a lot more healing that just hasn't made it public yet of the things that we can do for the human body. Um, yes. You know, I think there's a lot. There's so, I mean, we're just watching them 3D print uh, a ear. An ear, it blew, yeah, blew my mind. That and was nuts. listening to David Bonson talking about eye transplant, an eye transplant. I didn't even know we could do that, and how they put the new retina. And I'm just like, this is this is insane. This is magic. It is. <laughs> this I mean, is, you know, it's it's but it, it's magic in the right sense, right? right Restorative, because yeah. you're not gaining power over. You don't think you don't have any. There's no one saying or gaining the power over the nature of things yet, right? right? They're right. saying, look, I can – somebody loses their eye, I can fix that now. Right. Right? I, I, but it's because of how eyes work and, our, and the knowledge that, um, that we have gained through this. And this is, this is something that people don't – I don't think – we're not grateful enough for, but – the years of peace, the years without war, without rivalry, that have made this sort of thing possible. That's that. I mean, there there was a lot of advances, scientific advances, there were um, before in the world. It wasn't until Christendom that the scientific advances spread broadly because there wasn't a rivalry. The the rivalry was broken down, and so you could have the the uh, the monasteries in France developing new um, water wheel technology and immediately copying it down make, and, and sending it to every monastery. Hey, guys, check this cool thing out that we have discovered, right? Uh, the, the steel-tipped plow. That spread monastery to monastery to monastery until it was everywhere, and that, that um, was the largest change in food production until mm. you had uh, – mechanization right, was the steel tip plow and that the 
the scientific advances are made possible by peace. Christendom brought peace. And and um, if the peace continues, the scientific advances will. In wartime, you, um, all of the scientific knowledge, all of the scientific effort goes into defeating your enemies. Right. So, into defeating enemies, yeah. Yeah, and that and that's a waste. I mean, it's it can be used for good in the long run, but it's a waste of that energy. Well, okay. So what happens though when you have demonic possession? All that scientific energy goes into what? It goes into the the you know the worship of false gods, right? It, into the into idolatry, and, and um, this is because uh, you have people that say, "Oh man, if I can get uh, that retina, what if we?" start putting in like robot eyes and whatever you know the it's called i think the and it's becoming really popular it's a there's a whole movement transhumanism right where you start saying can i replace my body parts with superior robot versions of body parts what's a waste of time what it does. That's a waste of energy, right? We've got people dying of cancer, and you're like, "What if I gave myself a robot eye?" <laughs> right? So, but the whole transhumanist movement is taking that. I mean, I think the whole global global homogenization transhumanist movement is an attempt to uh, to redirect the scientific energy away from. The, the current use, which is still has the habits of the, the use, its use in the worship of God, right, the, for the benefit of your neighbor, into a power, into the power struggle, right, to, into the, it's, it's redirecting it to an idol, right, because you're saying it used to be in the service of life was good enough, but now it has to be in the service of this idol, which is promising that I won't die. But it was never, there was never any illusion that uh, um, in the Middle Ages, in the Renaissance, even in the Enlightenment, that, well, in the Enlightenment is where you get the roots, actually, of the the transhumanist movement. But there um, there wasn't an illusion that we were going to overcome death with medicine, but we were going to serve people in their life, bless their mm-hmm. life, extend their life, make their life better, but we weren't going to overcome death. That's a theological, that's something that is done in the cross and in the resurrection eventually. Um, But the transhumanist movement, you begin getting discussions in the enlightenment of what if we could actually defeat death with science, right? Um, What if we could uh, defeat, um, you know, if we could live forever with science, right? uh, and now people are saying it might be possible because they're looking at the advances, the uh, technological advances. It's not possible, right? The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Yeah. It will be destroyed when Jesus comes back, right? And that's, so that's a waste of energy, and it's an it, it's the that it's energy poured before an idol to say that at all or to consider it. Um, so. Uh, I don't know. Did I even answer your question? I, no, I, no, no. It's good. This is, I just I'm throwing a lot on the table because 
there's a there's a bunch here. Here's here's where I want to really focus on before we go real quick. I want to deal with how do we break the curse, and then breaking the curse. You know, when we talk about this, what how should we be pro- proclaiming the gospel so that we get people to see the beauty of the world that God has designed in Christ and integrate them into a world where they're like, oh, this is how. This this world is enchanted and it's beautiful and I love it. How do we how do we do that? So first breaking the curse, and then re-enchanting the world. The so the curse breaking is all done, but the is all accomplished in the cross, right? And so by faith we we bring that curse breaking into our into the spheres of our life, um, especially any spheres that we have authority over, right? So if you're a, a kid, the sphere that you have authority over within your family is the way you treat your parents, which is mm. why Ephesians 6, um, it, 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 it says it will go well with you in the world, right? It's a, it is a curse-breaking activity when their kids honor their parents. That, that's that's the, the language that is being used by Paul that he's picking up from the Ten Commandments and he's dropping it on these heathen kids saying, you've got an opportunity to break the curse. Unbaptized kids. Does it work for both? Or baptized kids? Unbaptized kids? <laughs> I mean, as kids, is it dealing with... You're always, you're always wanting me to... I just want to know if, who's kids. Like, does it work for everybody's kids or is there a certain type of kids that this they're supposed to be obedient to parents. Baptized kids are supposed to be obedient or unbaptized kids are supposed to be obedient to parents. Because yeah. I just want to know where the curse is broken at, whose house is right. I mean, one of my favorite things to do is talk people into baptizing their kids. But this is why, right? Is Because baptizing your kids is a way of saying, uh, the uh, Jesus died for us, the curse stopped, the, the curse doesn't uh, isn't effective here. Right, you know, I love I I love when you know when at my church people come forward in lines and they get the bread and the wine and we pray with people as they come forward. It's uh, it's different than any church I've ever been to. You have always been in churches where the bread and wine is passed out, and I think you've got the freedom to do either. Um, and not uh, John Knox when he changed the practice within the Presbyterian Church or presented a new practice within the Presbyterian Church of the bread and wine being brought to the people, he was right in the theological implications of the poetic activities within the liturgy. But I still think we actually have the freedom to do it either way. Um, and we, in our church, people walk down and they take the, the bread and the wine. And one of my favorite things is giving the bread and the wine to pregnant women, right? And because first I address them, Christ's body broken for you, and then I address their womb, and Christ's body broken for you, and get to pass the bread, and then Christ's blood shed for you, Christ's blood shed for you, right? It's just one of my favorite things, because I do believe that the curse uh, on child rearing is being rolled back. It's broken and is being rolled back, um, and the rivalry between parents and children is part of what is part of the curse that's broken, um, as well as the rivalry between brother and brother that you see in Cain and Abel, that all of that is broken. And so kids, in their in their authority as 
uh, office holders of the, of, or as subject holders within the covenant, right? They have this opportunity to say, "Curse, the curse is is here." The, the curse stops at the door by honoring their parents. So there's curse broke, curse breaking language in Ephesians six three. It will go well with you in the mm. world, right? Mm. In the world, yeah, in the world, right? So instead of the land, so in in the Ten Commandments, the fifth commandment is it will go well with you in the land. Paul says, well, the, that that law was nailed to the cross with Jesus, went into the grave, and when it came out, it applies now to these heathen children because they've been baptized in the covenant, right? They've passed through the Red Sea, and so now the Ten Commandments apply to them. But the whole world has passed through the Red Sea, and so now the Ten Commandments Jesus is the new the new Moses and baptism is the new Red Sea. And so now, because they received the Ten Commandments on the other side of the Red Sea, Paul says, kids, in baptism, that in baptism we've passed through the Red Sea. And so now the Ten Commandments apply to us in the world now. Um, you know, now we're in the situation that Joshua was in where he was taking his sword out and conquering the world. And we're taking the word of God out, which is sharper than any two-edged sword to conquer the world, which is that, that's what that sword, that's what that passage in Hebrews 4 is talking about. He's talking about Joshua in the land and the and a greater rest that's now being brought. And then he says, because every, because the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, right? So Joshua's sword that conquered the land is nowhere near as sharp as the word of God that's conquering in the hand of, of the church to conquer the world. But we, even in, I mean, the Bible that I read right now, it breaks that section off and reapplies it allegorically with a title right over the section that says, the word of God uh, reveals your heart, right? So it's allegorizing that passage and taking it out of context right there in my Bible with a little header, um, <laughs> separating it from the verse right beforehand when it talks about Joshua. So, it's a whole it, – uh, so the other way that we break the curse in the world is by preaching Jesus. Right? We preach the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing even soul and spirit. And it's, it's going out into the world, uh, separating the people out from the curse, right? Cutting, cutting the curse out uh, of the world. Did I lose you? No. No. And then, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, That I mean, the fruitlessness is the curse. Well, that's so the fruit of the Spirit is the other way. I mean, my first book was uh, In Pursuit of Kindness, and it was, I was reading the the... Proverbs and Solomon says, "He who uh, he who pursues kindness pursues life." And I was like, I never even thought of kindness as as really a virtue, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm reformed, right? right we right. <laughs> we're not nice to each other. Right? Um, nice is a um, and, and there's a distinction between kindness and niceness. I think that we that you can make and but but. Um, but death is the curse. What does it look like to move against that curse 
it says kindness, right? So I ended up in this, in my studies actually writing an entire book on the pursuit of kindness. What is kindness biblically? Because kindness is actually defined by Solomon as one of the ways that you roll back the curse of death in the world around you. Mm. Right? Um, so we, we, everything about our lives, we have curse breaking opportunities everywhere all of the time right he, I mean, the, opportunities yeah because right before the fruit of the spirit is where he says if you bite and devour be careful lest you be consumed by one another right you can either eat one another he says or you can produce the fruit of the spirit and feed one another right mm. so all of it is the the whole section is about it is about opposing the curses or rolling back the 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 curses I mean, the church, that's what the church does. The overarching metaphor of 1 Timothy is the church is the restored Garden of Eden. Mm. So um, it's hard. It's everywhere. And so it's hard to talk about it anywhere because it's, it is the the central um, image system, metaphor system that God speaks in. What, what's the title of your book again? The Pursuit of Happiness? Uh, of, uh, in, pursuit of, in Pursuit of Kindness, yeah. Uh, Amazon? Yeah, yeah. You get it on okay. Amazon. I, I'm, I'm going through it right now and again, and it's like, I've read it once, I glanced over it, and it's funny because I, the things that you say and when we're talking, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know this, I understand this, and then I, after we've talked for a while, um, the categories, you know, I, we didn't even get into the point of where Gnosticism plays in this and how we um the the way that uh we're comfortable seeing the world unenchanted because of Gnosticism. We need to get to yeah, that. Right. I want to talk about that. I got like a whole sheet of paper I need to get a chance to ask about. Um all right. This is gonna have to wait for another conversation for us. I feel like we just got started and we didn't get to the good part, Jason. <laughs> because I want to finish going Yeah, but but so when you have curses and curses that continue to cultivate themselves has a trajectory to demon possession. Well, the curses begin because Adam hands his authority off to the devil and says, hey, you hold it. Right. Right. You you take care of it. Now, God doesn't – God is not satisfied with that. And so the history – the history of God's people is God pushing his people back into the garden over and over and over, right? He – even Genesis ends with them in Goshen, which is like the Garden of Eden, right? So God is like, get back in there, get back in there, and we run for it, and our little short legs are too short to outrun God. So he's like, get back in there. And um, but the the authority uh, that handing the authority to the devil turns out to have been a bad thing because the devil is happy to abuse it, right? And so. Demon possession and the possess- and and the um, you know demonic run cultures are the devil abusing his subjects, um, which is what he does. I mean, it, it shouldn't be a surprise, right? Um, and I, I think each attempt that he has made since the since Jesus's resurrection to reestablish an empire has been thwarted within a generation. I mean that 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 is obvious. I think the Russian. Um, rule almost is the only one that almost the the USSR is the only one that's almost surpassed that almost surpassed a generation and um we'll see China's being undermined by the 
the church's growth right now. That and the pandemic, they're going to, because here's, well, maybe we'll talk about this tomorrow or next time, but I want to get into a little more breaking curses, how to cast out the demon in a culture. Um, Because I think that there's um, so much to that. There is a way in which Christians, you had a religious group of people who had demon possession among them when Christ was was there, and they didn't know how to deal with it. <laughs> and then even those who were following Christ, when they tried to cast out demons, they got beat up by some of them, <laughs> right? Yeah, it, didn't, it didn't always go the way. Right. Yeah. They, yeah. And and so those only came out by prayer and fasting, Christ said, right? And so there is there's there's something to that, and I, I just I want to talk through some of how to when you have a demon possessed culture. Um, what is uh you got to break the curse, got to re-enchant, you got to cast out the demon. How's what is this yeah. process we should, go through? Yeah, what does it look like? And this in a this world is where I think the like early, that, you know, the, yeah, I think this is where the early missionaries have a lot to teach us. You know that the the um, fifth through eighth century missions. That's what they did as they went into demon possessed cultures and converted them. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, that might be fun. We can do some story time. Um, well, if yeah, you have, Phil, if you have, the, if you have really to mark one, if you had to mark one thing to prove that America has a demon in its culture, what would you, what would you say that right there? Like if you had to mark it off, you're like, oh, yeah, that's the demon. Planned Parenthood. I would have thought that was a pagan god sacrifice in station, yeah, got, but yeah, okay. We got I mean, we're doing child sacrifices. I got I had yeah. you know, I was um speaker at a um pro life event once. Uh I was you know, I I got to go first, the biggest guy. Um, and there, there were two of us speaking, little tiny, wonderful guy, Roman Catholic priest. He was one of those like tough as nails Roman Catholic priests, you know, but, but little, little guy, soft spoken, but just like he was, he was the guy that you, he would stand and he, and I watched him do it. He stood, he, he stood in front of a, uh, a crowd snarling and spitting at him and, uh, and preached, in, and, uh, um, you know, you, you meet those guys. Um, so, and I went first and was up telling the story of St. Brandon. Um, and, and, uh, the St. Brandon was a, he was an Irish missionary and he heard that there were people on the other side of the Atlantic. And so he got in his little coracle and, um, he, and went to, and just, sailed that way trying to find people when at one point um so and he he threw his the monks went with him because when you hear there's people you know what the, the those people are are up for grabs because jesus died and rose from the dead like oh there's people over there i know what to do with people we go evangelize them well he he's sailing and these sea monsters start um circling his boat uh in the on a sunday morning right so they're going through the church service liturgy and all of the monks that are 
responding. He's up front doing the uh, the, the first part, and they're supposed to have their responses, and they're getting quieter and quieter because the sea monsters are getting closer. And uh, they're like, can you say your part quieter, Brendan? And and, he's, and he rebukes them for their fear, and he starts shouting the, his part of the liturgy. And um, the sea monsters are circling, and he's getting louder and louder. Uh, and and then it it reinvigorates the monks, and they start saying their part louder. It's a wonderful story, but I was using it as an example of, you know, the, a lot of the church, um, they look at the culture and they see the sea monsters circling, and they want to get quieter and quieter uh, about abortion. And um, But what we need to do is is uh, actually get louder and louder right that that we need to be more and more insistent that that uh and less and less af- afraid uh of the monsters of our culture well obviously there were hecklers show up right that's cuz it's a, an outdoor event and it was it's basically a street sermon um and pretty soon uh they're they're circling me as i preach right and they're starting to to growl, right? Because there's something demonic going on, and and so I'm laughing at this point because I'm like, you guys, and I just turn them. I was like, you guys are making it so easy. Like now everybody gets my metaphor because you're enacting it right in front of them, right? And uh, um, it, but I've got a big, you know, big loud voice, and so I could just raise my voice and and preach over the top of them, and uh, we and. and I say amen, and, and uh, they all they all walk away as soon as I stop preaching, and they they all go sit under a tree in the shade. Um, and uh, the next guy that gets up to to preach is the little the little Roman Catholic uh, priest who doesn't have the kind of voice I have, right? I've got God gave me lungs, um, and so he he uh, and they start to get up, and they're coming back over, and I'm like, oh, man, he's not going to be able to preach over them. And so I went over and engaged him. I was like, hey, guys, what are you all doing? You really have nothing better to do? And the guy was like, no, it's kind of a boring day. It's like, so you came over to heckle? He's like, I was like, yeah, I guess so. And so I, start, I started talking to him. Well, um, and afterwards, the, a police officer came over. So I talked to him. I ended up talking to him for like an hour and sharing the gospel with him. But also, you know, I was just – I was like, why, why is it that you, what do you guys think you're here opposing? And one of them was like, fascism. And I was like, okay, can anybody give me a definition of fascism? <laughs> and one of them was like, when people tell you what to do and you don't want to do it. I'm like, <laughs> nope, not even close. And I was like, anyone, anyone actually know what fascism is? And one of them guys was like, I think it's maybe economics. I was like, it is. And so it's like explaining fascist economic theory to them. And, and one guy goes like, so like George Bush, I was like, exactly, like George Bush. George Bush was a fascist. He's like, really? I was like, yeah. And so was Bill Clinton, and so was Obama. Like, fascism is our norm right now. And they're like, really? And so we ended up having this long conversation, and then you know I started getting their lives, life stories, and you know how they landed in this particular spot, and and pretty soon you know right, the the pro life march has moved on. And I'm sitting there talking with these guys. And then um, I gave them all my phone number, told them where church was, invited them, and then, you know, they they left. And the police officer came over, and he was like, 
Thank you so much. I was so worried that was going to go wrong. And, and I was like, they don't even know that they're being used. And he's like, yeah, I know. So that's just kids these days, right? And so there's this journalist sitting there hearing hearing us talk. And so she comes over and she's like, I got some questions. And so we started talking about abortion. Um, and And she was like, so what is it that you guys are opposing like what's the big deal and i just said from the beginning the church has been opposed to human sacrifice Mm. so this is not a political issue for us this is an issue of violence being done to people in the image of god whom we love and it's an issue of a religion that is calling for human sacrifice and i watched her write it down right and then um and and she said, can I publish this? I was like, absolutely. You can put my name to it, anything you want. The What actually came out in the paper it was my name, but the quote was, for us, this is a political issue. <laughs> right? It, the opposite of what I said. I watched her write it down, and she left saying, um, she's saying, I have not heard any of this before. This is really intriguing, and I think people are really going to – be interested to hear what you have to say. Whoever her editor was was like, nope. Right? And the quote that came out made um, he made it sound like I was a Republican operative. Right? Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I think that's that's demonic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? The the that there was a, that that's uh, a, that there is a centrally demonic. Uh, activity or that human sacrifice is the thing that demons want at their core. That's what they're always working up to. And that's what you have going on at Planned Parenthood and just abortion in general. And it's in, and it's possess the fourth estate. The, Absolutely. The, yeah. That the fourth, the, the, the fourth estate has become the uh, mouthpiece of it all. All right. We'll have to stop there. We'll have to talk about that. I just got questions. All I got is questions. <laughs> so okay we'll talk next time <sighs> man this is all 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 i did all i have right now is just 